least someone's looking forward to it. That's good. It's good to see everybody. It's good to be with uh, so many of you. I'm glad to see Cleone here. I was, I was worried she wouldn't be able to be here. There's a bridge out between here and, and her home, but she uh, navigated and is here, and we're so, so glad to see her uh, and all of you. If you would, go ahead and turn to John chapter 20. We're going to talk about a scene from the, the time after the resurrection that provided the only nickname that is given to an apostle. Of all of the apostles, one has a nickname, and his name is Thomas. We call him Doubting Thomas. Uh, I was preaching at a little church in northeast Arkansas when we were pregnant with our Thomas, and there was a lady there who, who, whose funeral I actually uh, officiated uh, a few years ago. But this, she, she asked, well, do you have a name yet? You know, and, and we said, we're going to name him Thomas. And she said, oh, I don't like that. You know how church ladies can be super honest sometimes. And she said, I don't like that. It just makes me think of doubting Thomas. You know, we have a pretty negative impression of this guy. We don't know a whole lot about him. Uh, it, we think he might have been a twin because uh, Thomas called Didymus. That, the, that word there would be one for a twin. So he may have been a twin of somebody. Um, but other than that, we know that he is called out by name by, in the Gospel of John as one who had a little bit of trouble accepting something he was told. But let's look at this story a little bit closer because I think a lot of us probably are more like Thomas than we care to admit. And maybe what we look at and see in the story of Thomas is not what we ought to be seeing because we look at it and see someone who had a weak faith for not accepting at face value something that someone else told him. But in truth, what he's expressing is something that we all have and is really not that bad of a thing. In fact, when we look at Jesus' response to Thomas, we see that even Jesus himself accepts what we as human beings struggle with, and that is to believe in what it is we are told. So let's look at the story where the only apostle with a nickname is given this nickname right here in chapter 20. Um, I'm reminded as I read this of a famous baseball, it's baseball season again, and that means I'm really excited. I'm a big, a big baseball fan. Anna Kate and I already have plans to go to Chicago in August to see the Cubs and the Cardinals play a doubleheader. We're going to sit in the bleachers for the afternoon game because you have to do that when you go to Wrigley Field. We're going to get some deep dish pizza in between and then enjoy the nightcap and uh, I'm looking forward to that. I love baseball. In 1988, in 1988, the World Series, Game 1, you had the Los Angeles Dodgers, who were kind of the blue-collar, ragtag group. Tommy Lasorda was their manager. And they were facing off against the Oakland Athletics, managed by Tony LaRusso, who was kind of the mad scientist of baseball, and they were, they were the absolute class of the league, the Oakland Athletics. They went to three straight World Series in the late 80s and, the, and, and into 1990, and they were considered by far the favorite. They had the big mashers like Mark McGuire and Jose Canseco. They had pitchers like Dennis Eckersley, and it was Eckersley on the mound in game one in a close ball game, and the Dodgers were running out of options, so, so they sent a pinch hitter up as they were in, with one out remaining in the ball game. And the pinch hitter hobbled up to the plate. His name was Kirk Gibson. <laughs> Kirk Gibson was near the end of his career. He had, a, he had a, a torn hamstring in one knee. 
And he had a torn ligament in the other knee. And he hobbled up to the plate. They just need him to get the bat on the ball. And even the uh, radio announcer for this game, uh, or excuse me, the television announcer for this game, Jack Buck, Jack Buck, famous Cardinal announcer for many years, noted, I don't even know how Kirk Gibson's walking up to the plate. And he hobbles up. And this is a real-life Casey at the bat kind of moment. And he gets up there and he fouls off a couple pitches. He swings and misses at a couple pitches. Eckersley, one of the greatest closers of all time, is coming out of the bullpen. And he hurls a pitch. Gibson reaches out with all the strength he has left, with knees about to fall apart. This is one of the, could be the final at bat of his career. And he just gets a little contact, and the ball sails over the right field fence at Dodger Stadium. And it's an iconic moment. And the call that Jack Buck made on that telecast, as Gibson's ball left the yard, he says, it's going to be a home run. Gibson rounds first, and Jack Buck says, I don't believe what I just saw. I don't believe what I just saw. That's a, a wonderful expression and a classic, uh, a classic line from a Hall of Fame announcer. But it really does encapsulate sometimes even what we see. It's hard for us to process such an amazing thing, much less the things that we don't see. Because if you tried to tell that story to someone else, it's almost incredulous. And so that brings us to Thomas, the disciples. They're all gathered. Jesus is risen. We begin in verse 19 of chapter 20. So when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut, where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst. Now, this is pretty amazing already. The doors are shut. The doors are locked. They're afraid of getting caught. And Jesus just comes and stands in their midst. He appears in a room that was locked. And he says to them, peace be with you. Jesus says that all the time. It's one of his his most repeated phrases in scripture that we have recorded. Peace be with you. Do not fear. Peace be with you. Verse 20. And when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side, and the disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. This is a verse we forget. Jesus comes, he appears before them, and as a way of demonstrating who he is, he shows them the nail marks and the piercing in the side. And what is their response? At seeing this, they rejoice. They're overjoyed because it's confirmed for them. This is our Savior. This is our Lord. He is truly risen. So Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And I've talked about this a lot in my sermons and in Bible class lessons. The Gospel of John is all about the transitive property of the relationship of God and Jesus Christ. God the Father does as Jesus does, we do as Jesus uh, does, and we therefore have a relationship with God. The relationship transfers to us. And Jesus says this again, and John records it. As the Father has sent me, I send you. The authority that's given to me, I now give to you. That's what Jesus is saying. And he does this on the basis of their belief and their rejoicing at seeing who he is by the evidence on his body. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. Wow. Now, this is a tough verse, too, and we skip over this one. But we've been given some authority through Christ in our ministry and in our evangelism. The ability to forgive sins, 
not by our own authority, but by the authority of Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. We have, the, we have been given quite a bit of power as the apostles were given power, and they received this gift of the Holy Spirit through the breath of Christ. And all of this is predicated on the fact that he is who he says he is and the evidence that they themselves witnessed about who he is. Don't forget that part because we skip in this story down to verse 24, and that's where we start the story. If you ask somebody, tell me the story of Thomas, well, we're going to go to John 20, verse 24. But don't forget 19 through 23. Because what we see in 19 through 23 will greatly change your opinion of Thomas when you get to verse 24. So here we go. But Thomas, one of the 12, called Didymus, was not with them. Don't know where he was. Might have gone out for a Culver's run. I don't know. But he's not there. And that's weird because they've got the door shut and they've got it locked. But he's on the outside, so he's tending to other business, and he's not there when Jesus shows up. So he doesn't get to see this amazing thing. He doesn't get to see this wonderful demonstration of God's power, this proclamation of the transference of power uh, to them, even the blessing of the Holy Spirit. They received the Holy Spirit. Did Thomas get it? Did he not get it? Does Jesus have to redo it? We don't know. It's not recorded. But what we do know is Thomas isn't there. And this is a cause of great distress for Thomas. So, verse 25, the other disciples were saying to him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And boy, do we look at that verse and go, oh, how dare he not believe? What a weak person. What a soft faith that he must have. We do that by ignoring the fact that the other disciples all got to see the very thing he's asking for. We look at it and say, oh, you know, he had to have the proof. So did they. All the rest of them, which at this point is 10 other people, they all saw what he's asking to see. He's not asking for anything more than what his fellow disciples have received. And yet, this guy, and he's forever known as Doubting Thomas, because he asked for this. And you and I are kind of more on Thomas's side very often than we are on the other disciples. And, and that's the way we work, too. In fact, Jesus will speak to that. You know we're in this story, too? We are. Jesus talks about us at the end of this story. Let's keep reading. So Thomas makes this declaration. And then verse 26, and this is important. After eight days, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas uh, was with them. Now, stop there for a minute. Have you ever felt like somebody else had a better relationship with God than you did? You probably have. Have you ever felt like somebody else was stronger in their faith or in an aspect of their faith?
like to be lost. In that moment, I thought, man, I've got a long way to go in being a Christian. I've got a long way to go in my faith. I'm never going to be where this guy is. I've heard people pray, and I think, why can't I pray like that? I've heard people talk about their story and about their faith and their relationship with God, and I think, why can't I have that? Because I feel like some people have a stronger relationship with God than I do. It bothers me. When I look at Thomas, he, he, it's like he missed the staff meeting, and he shows up, and everybody's saying, oh, my goodness, Thomas, you, you missed it. Jesus was here. He was right here, and he showed us the nails, and he showed us his side. It was Jesus. And Thomas says, I'm going to need to see that for myself. I'm having a tough time getting excited like you guys. I'm going to need to see that for myself. And we turn our nose up at Thomas for asking for the exact same thing that his brethren received and the exact same thing that we would want. 
But verse 26 is so important because I feel, I feel distant from God sometimes. I feel like my faith isn't anywhere close to some people that I know. I feel really deficient in the faith department. And it makes me want to withdraw. It makes me want to hide. It makes me scared to come to church. You know, part of the reason I like being a preacher is because it means I have to be here on the days where I feel like I don't. And I need to be here. I need to be encouraged and strengthened by the people I'm around. And so this is a good job for me because it forces me to do that on those days where I wake up and think, I don't even know where I'm at with God sometimes. Where was Thomas in the midst of his doubt? In the midst of feeling left out, left behind, not getting the thing that these other disciples got, where did he go? Did he go lay in bed and stay at home? Did he get depressed and withdraw? Did he cut off? No. Verse 26, they're just a week later, and where are they? They're all together again, and is Thomas there? You better believe he is. He didn't withdraw. He didn't let his doubt, he didn't let the feeling of missing out on something cause him to separate himself. He didn't say, well, I guess you guys just have a better relationship than, with Jesus than I do because I missed the party. I'm going to just go home and feel sorry for myself. No. He showed up. He came back. He was there with them in verse 26 when they get back together. So they're there together again. Thomas is with them in verse 26. Jesus came once again, the doors having been shut, and stood in their midst. Jesus is going to replay exactly what he did eight days earlier. And he says, peace be with you. Then he turns to Thomas and he says, reach here with your finger and see my hands and reach here with your hand and put it into my side and do not be unbelieving, but believing. Now, when we read that verse in isolation, we picture Jesus begrudgingly rolling his eyes and saying, okay, if this is what you need, go for it. And maybe you can believe now. Jesus isn't exasperated. He's not frustrated. He's not begrudgingly offering something to Thomas, uh, you know, throwing him a, a lifeline here. Jesus, in his mercy, in his love, and in his patience, says, I know you're feeling left behind on all this. I know you're feeling left out. I'm going to bless you the same way I've blessed these other disciples by offering you what I gave to them. This is not a passage of exasperation, frustration over someone's lack of faith. This is Jesus giving Thomas a one-on-one. -on -one. Now think about that. We can, we can scoff at him and say he was a doubter, but there were 10 of them standing there that received this blessing and they thought it was great and they were special and Thomas missed out. But Thomas got it one-on-one. -on -one. He got a one-on-one -on -one meeting to restore his faith, to strengthen his resolve, and to offer him a blessing. And Jesus says, here you go. Believe. We are called to have faith. But we are not called to have blind faith. Now, there's going to be a passage here about seeing and believing and all that. And I understand there is an aspect of faith that requires us to accept things that we don't see, that we don't have tangible evidence of. But God leaves us with an image. God leaves us with a picture. God leaves us with a trail to follow after him, even while calling us to faith. 
It is not blind faith. We, you read Hebrews, uh, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, in the definition of faith, the hope of, of things, uh, 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 faith is, is, is believing in the things that hope for and the things not seen. And yet, the things not seen doesn't mean that there's no evidence. Even the psalmist says the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork. There are things around us that call us to believe. While we accept faith as the means of our salvation, God does not leave us with nothing to hold on to. And he's not going to leave Thomas with nothing to hold on to. He's going to offer him the same thing he did the others. And for us, he reaches down and restores our faith and our hope and our strength and our resolve by giving us something to believe in. Now listen to what Jesus says. Thomas answered him and said, oh, I love this response. My Lord and my God. What more does he have to say? In that simple phrase, Thomas confesses his belief, acknowledges who he is in the presence of, and humbles himself. And Jesus says this, and again, this is a verse we can look at and think that it says something it doesn't. He says, because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who do not see and yet believe. Now that can sound like he's kind of, that's kind of a backhanded kind of thing toward Thomas, isn't it? Oh, well, you see me and you believe. Good for you. But there's going to be people who don't see me and they still believe. So, <laughs> no, that's not Jesus' attitude. He's saying, I gave you what you needed and you have believed. And you're blessed because you get to see me in person. There are going to be others who accept me who don't see me and they will be, it'll be a blessing to them as well. They are blessed because they are able to accept what they can't see. And then John does something here that, again, we, we miss because this, our, we, we make the story just these, like, four verses. That, and and it, it makes the story sound a certain way, but if you back it up and look at the scene, there's more to it. So John takes this opportunity right in the gospel to say this in verse 30. Therefore, many, therefore, it's preacher's favorite word, right? He make a whole point out of therefore. But therefore, because of what Jesus just said, Many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Now, why does John write that here? Because Jesus says to Thomas, I've given you evidence of who I am. I've given your brethren evidence of who I am. And you can believe and you can have authority through me to go and to share the gospel with those who can't see me, so that they too can believe. And John says, as an aside, I wrote this book so that you could know Jesus without seeing him. I wrote about the signs and wonders he performed so that you can believe Jesus without seeing him. I didn't even write everything down. But what is here is for you to see and to believe because God requires our faith, but he does not ask us to have blind faith. And the gospel writers, John included, gave us evidence by eyewitness testimony that we can read, that we can have the same evidence in our own way that Thomas had. Jesus doesn't stand before me in physical form, but I hear the eyewitness accounts of those for whom he did. And I can believe. Thomas gets a bad rap. He really does. 
But there's not a single thing that Thomas asked for that you and I have not asked for either. We just want to know he's there. And he gives us reasons to believe. Throughout scripture, throughout the story, throughout the evidence in the world around us, he gives us reasons to believe. And when the world gives us reasons to doubt, we have to know what to do with that. Because doubt is one of the tools that the devil will use to draw us away from God and draw us out of our community and draw us out of our family. When you doubt, first thing, know that that's okay. It's okay when you have doubt. It's okay when you struggle to accept. It's okay. The disciples themselves needed evidence. The fact that we can believe without that same physical presence is pretty remarkable. So be patient with yourself. Don't withdraw. Don't pull back. Don't be embarrassed. Don't think that you're deficient and everyone else in this room has it figured out because we don't. Instead, reach out. Grab hold of someone who can help you. we got to walk this walk together. And we're all going to have doubt. And we've got to stand strong with one another. Don't withdraw. Don't give Satan a foothold to make you think that your doubt is somehow special or that makes you a worse Christian or that God doesn't want you if you can't just believe without any evidence. That's not what God is asking of you. And it's not what he's offered you. But like Thomas, with resolve and courage, stay with the family. Stay with the community. Lean on them. Jesus will reveal himself and he will bless you. Get into the word. Find the answer for your doubt in God's word, in the scripture, in the story that it tells about Jesus, and the stories that it tells about so many Christians who've walked this walk. One of the most important parts of Jesus coming to this earth, we read later in the New Testament, was because he had to experience humanity. And when we struggle... You know, I imagine, and I speculate here, but I imagine this. I mean, God is God. He's above all of this. And when we're down here struggling and suffering and hurting and doubting, and we pray to God, and he, I don't know why they have such a tough time. And Jesus leans over to him and says, hey, it's hard down there. I've been there. Take it easy on them. We have an advocate in the throne room of God who has lived the life we live, who himself struggled. We see Jesus in the garden wondering if he should even go through with this or can even go through with this, but he does it anyway. He presses forward because he knows God will give him what he needs. Thomas likewise, Paul the same way. Read through scripture and the heroes of faith are those who pressed forward in spite of their doubt because God is faithful even when we doubt. He sent his son so that we don't have to doubt, and so that we can be free from the guilt of those nagging doubts that our own humanity draws us to. We serve a loving and gracious God who by that love and grace sent us his son, and he stands before us and says, here I am, believe in me. Believe in the accounts that others tell about me. Follow me, love like me, look like me. We have to be watching, and we have to know where to look when Jesus reveals himself. One of my favorite hymns, um, 
in our book is Nearer My God to Thee. The author there in just a few short verses essentially says, in whatever circumstance I find myself, if I'm toiling through this world, if I'm taking my final breath, all I want is to get close to God. That's all I want to do. I just want to be where he is. I just want to get that one step closer. Every day, one step closer to God. Jesus holds our hand and draws us one step closer every day if we believe. Look for the evidence. Look for the reasons and hold on to one another. 